When she was promoting Like a Prayer in 1989, Madonna was asked if the album was an attempt to abandon her Catholic upbringing. Being a lapsed Catholic myself, her response resonated with me, and I've kept it with me for quite a while. The exact quote, which, you know, I looked it up for this, Once you're a Catholic, you're always a Catholic in terms of your feelings of guilt and remorse and whether you've sinned or not. Sometimes I'm racked with guilt when I needn't be, and that, to me, is left over from my Catholic upbringing. Because in Catholicism, you are born a sinner, and you are a sinner all your life. No matter how you try to get away from it, the sin is within you all the time. Catholicism is not a soothing religion. It's a painful religion. We're all gluttons for punishment. It's a cliche to say that you can take the boy out of the church, but you can't take the church out of the boy, but some things become cliches because they're often pretty accurate. Religious upbringings have a deep, layered effect on an individual's outlook, mannerisms, bearing, and appearance, even if they ultimately decide to put that religion behind them. I hadn't seen mermaids until just a few minutes ago, but looking at the discourse over it and going over a few uh, synopses of it, I interpreted the 1990 family dramedy as an exploration of a teenage girl grappling with her dogmatic biases as the world and her hormones openly defy her preconceived notions. And for the most part, that's a good chunk of what Mermaids is. We'll be talking about this and other elements of this film's subtext in this episode. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. All right, joining me for this one, this is another Sylvan and Cheryl episode. Say hello, both of you. Hello, both of you. Hi, I think you should have said Cheryl and Sylvan, though, because this one was Cheryl's pick. Yes, this was Cheryl's pick. You made those the rules. You defied the rules. (laughs) Yeah, I forgot about that. So yeah, this is Cheryl's pick, and it's a little surprising that you've picked a whole bunch of movies at this point, and it took you until now to do something with Cher in it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm making a face because, like, I love Cher, like, a lot, but I only own one Cher movie, and it's Burlesque, and I hate that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's not one of the good ones. It is Like, even the second Mamma Mia movie is better than that. I don't own the second Mamma I only owned three copies of the first one, and I've never bought a single copy of Mamma Mia. They just materialized in my life. I bet you'd like the second Mamma Mia. Does it have Pierce Brosnan? Yes, but they make him hum a little bit, but that's it. Yeah, I'd probably like the second Mamma Mia. <laughs> Is there anything that either of you would like to say about your immediate takeaway from Mermaids before I do the plot synopsis? Go away, Joe. Go away. Yeah, that's a a big part. I desperately want Cher's mermaid costume. Also, her hair is fabulous throughout that movie. Like, it tells you that it takes place in the early 60s, but her hair was enough for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's totally her hair. That can't be a wig. All right, plot recap. Uh, This film opens in Oklahoma in 1963, and it centers upon Charlotte Flax, who is a neurotic 15-year-old, kind of an oxymoron there, whose carefree single mother, Rachel, although she's only referred to as Mrs. Flax, except for one scene in the film. A couple of times. uh, Yeah. Also Rachel. Right. She relocates Charlotte and her 19-year-old half-sister, Kate, each time she... Nine-year-old. Uh, yeah, nine-year-old, sorry. Each time she ends a relationship. Rachel's parenting approach, which more resembles friendship than mothering, and even then she's not a terribly great friend. (laughs) 
uh, troubles the anxiety-ridden Charlotte, who is embarrassed by her mother's flamboyant nature. In an attempt to rebel against her mother, embraces Roman Catholic Catholicism. This is a Jewish family, as uh, Rachel is not reluctant to mention. Although it's Jewish and they're like, eh, I'm gonna bring it up to fight against you being Catholic without us really doing anything Jewish at all, ever. After an affair with her married employer goes awry, how did that happen? <laughs> Mrs. Flax and her daughters moved to a small town of Eastport, Massachusetts, where she also gets a job as a receptionist for an insurance adjuster. Although there's only, only really one scene where she interacts with the dude. It's not really the point. Charlotte is ecstatic about the new home's location as it borders a convent and, once again, the Catholicism. Not to mention that the convent's handyman is a 26-year-old man named Joe who's... Go away, Joe! Yeah, Charlotte's about 15, and since it's 1963, Rachel's openly encouraging her to become interested in this grown-ass man. Well, I mean, I also think there's a good amount of mockery in her encouragement, because right now she's expressed that she wants to be a nun, so she thinks that she's, like, just messing with her. Because um, Charlotte's not really talking about any of her inner workings with anyone. To add another layer of, uh, Joe is the school bus driver? So, you know, Charlotte is sitting on the school bus because she's a child going to school. And her internal monologue, this film does have a monologue driven by uh, Charlotte throughout, you know, and just, it's I mean. very interesting. It is so teenager. It's amazing. I mean, movies often get shit for doing voiceover, except Martin Scorsese movies. Apparently those are the exception. He's allowed to use voiceover, but nobody else is. It's seen as a lazy shortcut. But it does give some interiority to Charlotte's very, very horny mind. Because the whole time she's like trying to struggle to find things that are cool to say to Joe and the voiceover is going, oh God, please unbutton my dress. Oh no, why did I say that? Our father who art in heaven. Which like, I mean, maybe it's just a product of our very, well, pseudo-Catholic upbringing. I'm like, yeah, that's what it's like to be a teenager. <laughs> right? Everybody? Meanwhile, Rachel meets a local shoe store owner, Lou Lansky, and slowly begins a relationship with him. Yeah, he shows up at a PTA meeting, even though both his kids have grown up and moved on. He's clearly interested in her. And they're pretty direct with each other. It's adorable, largely because of the performances. Cher and Bob Hoskins play off each other very wonderfully. Smooth operators. Following the assassination of John F. Kennedy, 1963, remember, that's going to come up. Charlotte finds Joe ringing the convent bell and consoles him by making out with him. Ugh. I'm trying to remember what he says to her right before she kisses him, too. It's a weird little speech. Oh, yeah, there was something of... He is very bad at communicating, because one of the first times they talk, he just randomly brings his dead mother into the conversation. Like, I feel like he's just, like, trying to, like, cool things down, but still, it's just, like... For <sighs> half the movie, it does seem like he, he is trying... Like, he's aware that this 15-year-old is unhealthily attached to him, and he is trying to be awkward on purpose. But then the movie takes a turn, and you realize he's just an awkward person. He is not actually trying to deter the 15-year-old. Yeah, there's talk around the town because this Joe person was enamored with another lady previously and she suddenly left and everyone is under the assumption that he knocked her up and she left to retain her honor because it's the early 1960s and it's a small town and everyone's talking. He insists that their relationship ended very innocently, by the by. And it was her parents' idea to move. 
Because Catholic, Charlotte starts feeling super guilty and flees. And after the encounter, she begins fasting in order to purge her sinful thoughts. Uh, passing out from hunger once or twice, which brings Mrs. Flax no end of grief. She also decides that she's pregnant. Yeah, completely uneducated <laughs> about sex. Charlotte fears that... Very aware of weird things that have happened to saints. Charlotte is under the impression that God is going to punish her with immaculate conception, and she decides to steal her mother's car and run away to Connecticut. She just randomly stops at the home of a young family in New Haven, claiming to have suffered car troubles. The family invites her to have breakfast, but Lou arrives to retrieve Charlotte during the meal, having tracked her after, you know, reporting the car stolen. Rachel chastises Charlotte when she returns home, but Charlotte never reveals why she did what she did exactly. Sometime after that, Charlotte makes an appointment with a local obstetrician under the name of Joan Ark, because of course she does. <laughs> the doctor informs Charlotte that she is not pregnant and asks her if she knows how pregnancy works. As she is still very much a virgin. Or at the very least, her hymen hasn't been penetrated, but you know what I mean. We can get from context and everything we know about this character so far that at this point she's still a virgin. Yeah, Charlotte is shocked but relieved. And very embarrassed. At a New Year's Eve costume party, Lou asks Rachel to marry and move in with him, but she declines, reminding him that he is still legally married to his wife who had abandoned him. Although I think that's just an excuse. When Rachel was knocked up by Charlotte's father, she was completely smitten with him. She wasn't all that much older than Charlotte when this film takes place. And this abandonment clearly burned her. So she's there, not at what we would call emotionally available. Yeah, she definitely has a fear of intimacy and poor Lou. The nicer and more open with her and her family Lou gets, like the more she's self-sabotaging and trying to set the relationship on fire. Yeah, there's a big scene where Lou and the kids just paint his spare bedroom blue to have an aquatic theme, so it can be like this mermaid vibe, because as the title of the film implies, Rachel dresses up as a mermaid for the costume party, and Rachel is all kinds of scared that Lou is bonding with her children. Also, Katie, the, the younger daughter, is possibly got a future in the Olympics as a swimmer. She's very into water and the ocean, so this was a good bonding activity with the little one. It was so cute! Yeah, Lou's paying attention, which Rachel is very disturbed by. And he's so good at it! <laughs> Uh, yeah, after the party, Rachel finds her car refusing to start and is given a ride home by Joe. Go away, Joe! Upon arriving there, Rachel gives Joe a long kiss because she's a little drunk, and Charlotte notices this and becomes enraged, believing her mother is trying to thwart her budding relationship with this 26-year-old man. <laughs> On New Year's Day, with Rachel out for the day with Lou, Charlotte and Kate get drunk on jug wine and wander to the convent. Charlotte finds Joe in the bell tower and immediately pounces on him, leaving Kate, who is a nine-year-old girl who is wasted, unattended by the river, who is, you know, planning to gather rocks. In her pockets. She's filling her pockets with rocks. While Charlotte and Joe have sex, Kate nearly drowns in the river, but the nuns notice and rescue her. These are pretty cool nuns, by the way. They're like playing horseshoes and laughing. And they're very nice to strangers, which is not always my experience with nuns. And they're very nice to Jewish strangers, by the by. 
As Kate recovers, an infuriated Rachel gets into an argument with Charlotte about her irresponsibility and threatens to again move them to another town. The argument ends after Rachel slaps Charlotte in the face and the two subsequently have a calm, heartfelt conversation about their feelings, possibly the first time they've connected as mother and daughter in quite some time. Earlier in the film, Rachel pointedly mentions that I am Charlotte's mother. I'm going to be the last person she tells about anything. Also, too, like, Charlotte's super judgmental with her mom, insanely harsh, and has, like, the hardest time opening up to her. What brings about the slap is Rachel saying, you know, you, you slept with Joe, or are you planning to be the town whore, and... Tramp, she said tramp. Tramp, rather. And, yeah, Charlotte's like, oh, that position's been filled, and there it happens. It's, uh, it's actually really fun, too, because I went to a share concert, and they used that in the montage. Yes, uh, this sequence is part of a long, proud history of Cher slapping actresses who are playing her daughter. It's really awesome. It's just one of her things that she does, like how Brad Pitt is like weirdly into eating in all of his movies, or how Ben Affleck is constantly converting lesbians in his romantic comedies. Uh. Right? It's so weird, and I never noticed to like, point it out. It's like, oh my god! I, I mean, I only know about that a lot of them. Oh, uh, it also happens in Geely, which is as bad as its reputation suggests, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I was never going to watch that one. I did, to see if it was bad, as everyone says, and it's worse. Anyways, back to the point. Discussing her father, Charlotte realizes finally that he is never coming back to them, because she only has vague memories of one instance where they watched an eclipse together when she was, like, four. She has romanticized her father and is under the impression that he's just going to, like, swoop in and rescue her one day. Specifically his shoes. Well, you, that, that's what she could see. Those were nice shoes. I know, but it gets really cute towards the end of the movie. Rachel ultimately agrees to Charlotte's plea that they stay in Eastport for at least one more year. Over the course of this following year, Rachel and Lou continue their relationship, and they're kind of butting heads, but it's in a playful, funny, sexy way, and Rachel won't admit that they actually, it's working out. Joe relocates to California to open a plant nursery, but- Good job going away, Joe. Alas, he and Charlotte keep in contact via postcards. Bad job going away, Joe. (laughs) At school, Charlotte has gained a new reputation due to her sexual encounter in Joe. The boys are paying much more attention to her. And she replaces her Catholicism obsession with Greek mythology, which, yeah, that hit me right in the chest. I went through a pretty big (laughs) Greek mythology phase when I was about that age. I mean, who didn't? But also lose shoes. Yeah, and this is another one of those films that end with a dance party affect where Rachel, Charlotte, and Kate playfully dance as they set the dinner table for a family meal, something they have never done in the past, as Lou pointed out, because, you know, he made a meal for all of them, and they're just, like, standing around the kitchen area eating separately, and he's like, what the hell are you doing? And then also, like, Rachel had gotten very uncomfortable when he got everybody sitting down for a family meal. And, uh, yeah, another fun aspect of the movie is that Rachel can't cook, so she serves everything on, like, toothpicks and skewers. And one of the social media groups you follow is one that just, like, posts disgusting results of 1950s cookbooks. (laughs) And it's very much that. Questionable vintage recipes. Yeah, um, I mean, Rachel's stuff is a little simpler than what you see on the vintage recipes group, because a lot of that stuff does require a lot of effort. Uh, There's a lot of gelatin and fish. Interesting things done with tuna and pickled herring, mostly. 
All right, production for this film. It is based on Patty Dan's 1986 coming-of-age novel of the same name, which uh, this film came out in 1990, so that's a pretty fast turnaround for a book-to-movie pipeline. Somebody thought this was going to be a very obvious, crowd-pleasing feature. Unlike certain other authors, Dan was quite happy with the film, and she says that she occasionally puts the soundtrack on when she's cleaning and makes her think happy uh, reminiscences. That's really sweet! While Dan is a frequent contributor to newspapers, magazines, and The New Yorker, she didn't publish her second novel until 2008, which is quite a gap. Her fourth and most recent novel came out last year. Good for her! Now, initially this film was going to be the debut American feature for Swedish director Lassie Hallström. He is best known for directing all of ABBA's music videos. Yay! He wanted the film to be much darker. He wanted Charlotte to commit suicide. He didn't really work out because he couldn't get along with Cher, who kept butting heads with him about the creative process. He left the project to direct Once Around, which came out in 1991. He later helmed What's Eating Gilbert Grape in 93, The Cider House Rules in 99, Chocolat in 2000, which are all much darker than Mermaids. Yep. Uh, his most recent efforts would be A Dog's Purpose in 2017 and The Nutcracker in the Four Realms in 2018. <laughs> Yeah, interesting trajectory for him. I mean, I feel like that's on par with Gilbert Grape. The next person who was brought in to direct was Frank Oz. He also wanted a much darker tone and wanted to retain the Charlotte committing suicide ending and clashed with both Cher and Winona Ryder, who was attached to the film at that point. He left to direct What About Bob? Looking to get somebody who was a little less egotistical and more professional, the studio brought in actor-director Richard Benjamin. As I said, he was an actor before he became a director, so he got along with the actors a little more easily. He had a lot more background with period pieces, notably My Favorite Year in 82 and Racing with the Moon in 84. Initially, the daughter, Charlotte, was supposed to be played by Emily Lloyd, who actually did shoot a couple of scenes. She had turned down the lead role in Pretty Woman to get the part. Oh, that poor woman. <laughs> Cher complained that Lloyd's light hair made it implausible for her to be her daughter, and since Cher really liked Winona Ryder's performance in Heathers, started pushing for her to replace Lloyd. Oz, who was still attached to the project at the time, agreed. Uh, Lloyd wound up suing Orion Pictures for breach of contract and was awarded $175,000 in damages. This was the beginning of the downturn in her career, though. She had some kind of mood disorder and anxiety, which possibly was rooted in being molested by an older relative when she was a kid. She started getting a reputation for being unreliable and, you know, suing a studio for breach of contract, gave her a reputation in the industry. And she started getting more famous for the parts that she lost rather than the stuff that she was in. Mermaids was shot from uh, September 25th, 1989 to about December 15th, you know, a couple of months later. The exteriors of the Flax home were shot in Coolidge Point near Manchester-by-the-Sea, while most of the photography of the fictional village of Eastport was done in Rockport. The bell tower was constructed in North Easton, and it's not a real bell tower. Interior scenes were shot on a soundstage in Malden, while a few bits were shot in New Hampshire and Rhode Island. So this is another one of those movies where 
where since we're mass holes, you'd be like, oh, hey, I've been there or I've been to a place that's a lot like there. Yeah, everything looked right. I'm terrible with that too because like anytime they show the posting anything, I'm like, is that Rockport? Like anytime. So I didn't say it this time and you're like, Rockport. I'm like, oh, the beach scene was in Rockport. Yeah, this time it actually was Rockport. And it's pretty easy to tell because there wasn't so much sand as there was rocks. <laughs> If you were not from around here, New England doesn't actually have beaches. All of our sand is imported. Yeah, we talked about that in one of my classes in college. Very rocky coast. One of the more enduring elements of Mermaids is the soundtrack. Uh, the score is composed by Jack Nietzsche, which it doesn't really stick out that much, except for the opening shot of the film, which takes place during one of the swim meets. That one features some piano that is not quite Scott Joplin's The Entertainer, but is enough to be very distracting. You guys kept talking about it to the point that I was like, oh god, they're not going to watch the movie at all. They're just going to be talking about this for the whole movie. <laughs> yeah, they play like the first five or six notes of The Entertainer, and then they just go off into like Ario Speedwagon territory. <laughs> and I don't like it. But the part that people remember is that they cherry pick a lot of needle drops from that pre-Beatles period in early 60s pop music with lots of like, you know, doo-wop and not so much the novelty songs, you know, the stuff that people like, you know, Jackie Wilson, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Leslie Gore, Jimmy Soul, Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, Doris Troy, that sort of thing. Cher recorded two cover songs for this film. The first was Baby... I'll bite you. <laughs> we are of very different opinions of the quality. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll ramp up to that. Uh, the first was Baby, I'm Yours, which was first recorded by Barbara Lewis, and Cher's version peaked at number 89 in the UK and missed the Hot 100 in, in uh, America completely. Wasn't really a big thing. However, there's also the Shoop, Shoop, Shoop song, this was Cher's second UK number one, and it reached the top 10 in pretty much every other European country, but only made it up to 33 in the United States, which is interesting because the late 80s were a period where like Motown pastiche in particular and 60s nostalgia in general was very popular on the pop charts, but this one, I guess, didn't quite do as well. It definitely played well at childhood sleepovers in my family. I got so sick of that stupid song. I still play that song constantly i'm sure you do so yeah that's that's about as far as we can get with the soundtrack while still you know being polite about it <laughs> <laughs> all right let's talk about the cast uh amazing we, cast mm -hmm. yeah first and foremost we have Cher as <gasps> rachel flax the main reason that Cheryl sought this film out and selected it for this podcast as i brought up already she is usually only called mrs flax and as I said, this is a critical entry in the Cher Slaps Her Daughter series, which <laughs> in the concert that Cheryl attended, she included in the backdrop as part of a montage because if nothing else, Cher is very self-aware. Oh yeah, she's hilarious. Her concert's amazing and I entirely recommend anybody go to see her. When she does her like one of like 30 costume changes, that's what happens. You just see like montages and stuff in the background. It's amazing. In case you want to seek it out and and you don't want to just look up the highlights on YouTube. She also slaps the person playing her kid in Mask and Moonstruck. One thing I learned about Cher in this is that she insisted upon that mermaid costume and engineered it herself, which I am not the least bit surprised about. It is gorgeous and I want it so bad. Cher is fantastic in this. I'm not the biggest Cher stan. That would be the person sitting to my right. But um, 
you know, all her little zippy one-liners and her rapport with not only Bob Hoskins, but also Winona Ryder, struggling to take her daughter shoe shopping, not really having much in common with her. All the little things she's saying where she's like, I've had a scotch and now I'm calm. It's okay <laughs> for you to talk to me. And, uh, we don't have anything else to say about Cher's performance. Yeah, just that she's excellent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, unrivaled. Absolute best Cher performance in any of her movies. Yeah, next person I want to bring up is Bob Hoskins' is Lou. Apparently, when the screenplay was being written, they had Dudley Moore in, in mind for it, but he wasn't available, so they had to settle for Bob Hoskins. He was their second choice. He's adorable in this. I largely think of him as Eddie Valiant and Who Frames Roger Rabbit and to a lesser extent in Mario and the Mario movie, which we covered in a previous episode. Uh, he's also Shmee and Hook, and that's about everything that I've seen him in, but he's so good in this. Yep, very good. And Sylvan looked him up on IMDb while we were watching the film, and he's a character actor, so he's in a lot of crap. He doesn't necessarily get many opportunities to strut his stuff. Yeah, he has 120 acting credits on IMDb, and some of it just makes you sad. Like, that's a waste of Bob Hoskins. Probably because of how many times we watched Two Framed Roger Rabbit when I was a kid, I'm wired to have a good opinion of him. I didn't even really need to have a preconceived notion of him because his performance in this is just, it's really adorable. The way he palms his own face when he realizes that Mrs. Flax is actually into him or the way he flirts with her at the PTA meeting and he takes her over to the pond for just painting the walls while singing Oklahoma with the girls. Like he nails all of those little moments. Oh, and he's so cute when they go to the baseball museum. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he gets to touch Lou Gehrig's glove. <laughs> when he's talking about the painting and he's like, I never once told you I was good at painting. Just that I was passionate about it. <laughs> Yeah, he has uh, Mrs. Flax pose for one of his paintings, and he has a sort of, like, Picasso meets Matisse approach to it, but very clearly a folk art amateur, I'm doing this in my spare time in between the shoe store things, which, you know, I can relate to that. The face looks actually pretty good on the painting, but that hand. Oh, that was a very Picasso <laughs> hand, but not on purpose. I found the faces on his paintings to be a bit haunting. Oh, but no, but the one that he, of, of Mrs. Flax in particular, I liked the eyes a lot. She did look like Cher. Scary <laughs> mummy Cher. <laughs> All right, and kind of the anchor of this film, Winona Ryder as Charlotte, who she had already had a reputation with Heathers, but a lot of Mermaids depends on Ryder, and she is very good at selling herself as a sexually frustrated teenager who has no idea what the hell she's doing. When she, like, licks his leather jacket, like, that's the most painful and hilarious part of the whole movie for me. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's a bit where her first date with Joe is when, Go he, away, Joe. when he takes her fishing, and they're like hiking through the woods together to get to the boat and she like trips and falls and he catches her and she like starts to smell his glove and like tries to chew it a little bit this movie of his is jacket. very good at secondhand embarrassment without <laughs> making it so painful that you like you can still watch it the whole time oh, i love charlotte like it really is just I'm like that's the teenage experience it helps that a lot of like if she said those things out loud the secondhand embarrassment would have been too much for me but it's mostly it's mostly in her head so it's like okay cool we can laugh we've had those stupid thoughts or something similar i mean i'm a cis dude so just that times a thousand but yeah <laughs> next up michael Schofling as joe 
<laughs> he's good at playing a creep? Yeah, uh, he's the only person in the cast who had previously worked with director Richard Benjamin. He had a um, minor role in, I believe, Racing with the Moon. It might have been my favorite year. I haven't seen either of them. I probably should have made a note of that. But yeah, he is clearly still young, but also clearly still far too old to be romantically linked with this Charlotte character. A 15-year-old who's school bus he drives Ugh. yeah he's his part is to play an oblivious doof and he he largely accomplishes that uh, i mean since this movie takes place in 1963 they don't really explore the inappropriateness of that age gap in their relationship there's a whole lot of looking the other way there and plus a lot of it's from the perspective of a 15 year old and i maintain it's totally normal for 15 year olds to develop inappropriate feelings for adults what when it becomes a problem is for the adult to Go with it. Yeah, Joe should know better. And he probably does know better, but there he goes, banging her in that bell tower. The bit afterwards where she just, like, I should probably mention that she puts on her mom's dress while she gets wasted on the jug wine with her little sister. And very badly tries to copy her mom's makeup. Like, she's clearly <laughs> never put on makeup before. And it, even though she's, fif- like, a lot of 15-year-olds would know how to do makeup by that point. But she's been going, like, hardcore the other way with the, um, like, self-denial aspect. Leaning into the self-denial aspect of Catholicism. So her makeup job looks like a five-year-old. How do I look? Like, someone colored on your face. <laughs> Yeah, there's a whole lot of, I'm going to be bad, like my bad, wanton mother. (laughs) Yeah, a whole lot of subtext there. My bad, wanton mother that I just saw make out with Joe. (laughs) Speaking of that one-liner, Christina Ricci as Kate. This is Ricci's very first film role. She's adorable! Yeah, I mean, it isn't readily obvious that Christina Ricci is going to have a long star-making career in this, but it's difficult to encounter kids this young in movies who aren't totally obnoxious, and Ricci is just she super professional across, from the jump. She comes across as very natural. Like, if I had seen this without knowing who she was already, I would have, like, wondered and, like, IMDb'd her and been like, hmm, I wonder if this child actor went on to other things. The bit where she's just, like, lying in the tub and trying to time herself for holding her breath, and, you know, her mom and her sister is like, oh, there she goes again. It definitely feels very real. Like, she's obsessed with competitive swimming in the way only a little kid can be. She also plays little kid drunk pretty good. Yeah, I know. It was <laughs> disturbingly convincing. I'm hoping that Christina Ricci didn't actually know what it was like to be drunk at that age. Maybe they just, like, spun around a lot first. I haven't found any information over the backdrop of that scene, so I'm going to go with that. That is a very comforting headcanon for me. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, well, one minor character in this is Jan Minor as the mother superior for this. This is her very last film performance. She had only done a couple of things. She's uh, best known for doing this dish detergent ad. She popularized the phrase, you're soaking in it. I like okay. this phrase. <laughs> yeah, she parlayed that into playing that random nun in the shoe store for that one scene in Mermaids. Why Although she also put, rescues Kate from the river, so you don't get that. Why would you soak in dish detergent? I mean, uh, I looked up a couple of the commercials on YouTube, and they do have a sort of kitschy 80s charm to it, but apparently, like, she was the equivalent of, like, Flo from the progressive ads for a couple of years, where she was just everywhere. Now I'm just picturing Flo as a nun. Eh, I can see her selling that. Okay, the reception for this film, it got mostly positive notices. Yay! Uh, 
I did, however, because I'm me, track down one negative review for it, which is from Time Out New York. They criticized the emphasis on aquatic motifs throughout the film, finding it distracting. I'm not sure where they're coming from. The movie is called Mermaid. They tell you what it's about. This critic also claimed that Rachel and Charlotte were too self-absorbed to be likable or relatable, which... I don't fully get. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a coming of age story. Charlotte you have just to be struck me as a teenager. Yeah, yeah, she's 15 years old, and I mean, you're going to be self absorbed at that age. And Rachel's very concerned about her kids. She's ineptly concerned about her kids, <laughs> but she is concerned about them. Yeah, there's a part of her where the film where she just sort of explodes, where she's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm trying. Please work with me on this. This always takes me back to the argument that characters don't actually have to be likable for you to become attached to them. The best way for them to be relatable is to have them want something. Like, you can connect to, say, Walter White in Breaking Bad, who is just objectively a bad person, or Tony Soprano, because they aren't good guys, they're actually terrible people, but they want something. Like, I had an emotional inv investment in Alex from A Clockwork Orange, who's about as horrible as a screen character can be without being a literal Nazi. And but you can also just find characters strong as interesting, even if you don't like them. Yeah, I mean, all of those characters are compelling, and Rachel and Charlotte aren't horrible people, they're just... Hurting. Yeah, they're in pain, and I identified very readily with both of them. The film had a budget of about $20 million. It made $35.4 million at the box office, which that means that it was a bit of a disappointment. That's not enough for it to um, turn a profit. However, even though I have never heard of this film before Cheryl suggested it for the podcast, at least amongst my personal social sphere, it seems to be very well regarded. Oh yeah, I mean, it's stacked with amazing actors. It's got good music, and it's just kind of feel good. I mean, there are instances where I assume that something is just some kind of, like, universal pop culture mainstay, where it just turns out to be, just, like, this weird thing that only me and my family know about. <laughs> it <looks like> <laughs> <laughs> I think this one has a wider audience, like, appreciation than, than just Cheryl and our cousins. Well, yeah, anybody that's obsessed with Cher loves this movie. And she does have a, you know, somewhat of a fan base, I guess. Yeah, I mean, she's a modest one, teeny mm. tiny. <laughs> yeah, she's not a gay camp icon or anything. It did get some award notices. Winona Ryder got a Golden Globe nod for Best Supporting Actress, and she won in that category for the National Board of Review. And an award that I'd never heard of until I looked up for uh, Mermaids was called the Young Artist Award, which uh, was the first time Christina Ricci won anything for acting. With her very first movie. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, maybe got her a little cocky, maybe. <laughs> I don't know, it didn't affect her performance in the Addams Family movies. She was, she was just a total pro for both of those. Alright, moving on to the themes. Getting back to the first thing that came to me when I read all the various synopses and thing pieces I could encounter about mermaids. Catholicism's hang-ups about sexuality, which, after watching this film, yes, permeates every single fiber of it. Religions are basically an ancient form of government. Uh, all of them try to dictate social behavior either by promising rewards or threatening punishment, both in this life and potentially afterwards. Well, I mean, that is a very Catholic way to look at religion, certainly. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think all of them have a little bit of that, but yes, particularly Catholicism. And Catholicism is very adamant about dictating what you're supposed to do when you're horny. It's also pretty convinced that you're not allowed to be horny unless you're about to conceive children with your spouse. And even then, it's sort of frowned upon anyways. And I suppose I can't conclude that this was a conscious plan, but it's pretty easy to control a person if you can make them feel ashamed about doing something that's both healthy and natural to them. And if you don't tell them how to do it beforehand, or you forbid people from speaking candidly about it so you can approach it in a healthy, knowledgeable way. If the guy sees you as their only road to salvation, every time he gets a boner, you have a pretty strong leash upon them. I just thought it was interesting that for this movie, the Catholic guilt is all very self-imposed. Like, she's clinging to that as a way to create an identity to separate her from her mother. You know, we were raised Catholic. We did not choose that identity, and we all moved away from it. The idea that somebody did that to themselves on purpose is just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, and the nuns in the movie are, like, pretty carefree. Like, they're playing horseshoes. She seems disappointed when she sees them doing that. Yeah, they're really friendly so like it, it all felt like for me very focused on her and that she like she's the one that's reading all the books about the saints what struck me is that like, out of everything i've read about mermaids they don't mention that charlotte's from a jewish family and that the catholicism is completely self-imposed in a way to sort of low-key rebel against her mother which is very flagrant if you watch the film at least to me it was oh yeah yeah, that that's the identity she chose for herself. That's her being a rebel. Because she has no real control over what's going on in her life. Yeah, yeah, every time uh, her mother's relationship goes south, it just pulls up the roots and goes to another part of the country that's hundreds of miles away. Like Oklahoma to New England, that's a move. That's a trek. And she picked that out by, like, just pointing at a map in the tub. Another thing I have written down is parents aren't supposed to be your friends. Once again, I... When reading about this film going in, I kind of expected it to be a somewhat different relationship between Rachel and Charlotte. I thought that she was just going to be too cowardly to like lay down the law. But no, she's constantly snarking on her just in a way that comes off as very sophomoric and not particularly maternal. Sort of like got the vibe that Charlotte blamed her mom for her dad not being there. And because he wasn't around and she didn't know him, she had like built up this idea of who he was. So like she was kind of punishing her mom for not having that presence in her life. Oh yeah, that's that comes across. And then that's one reason why the final conversation at the end is effective, really, in getting Charlotte to calm the frick down. Like she she sees like she she finally finds out what actually happened, which is that her dad was a shit and he took off on his own. And beforehand, Rachel sets almost no boundaries with her children, just like teasingly encourages her 15-year-old daughter's relationship with this grown-ass adult man, amongst other things. She gives them very little stability, and yeah, that, that that's kind of dangerous, and I think part of the reason that Rachel just gets so upset with Charlotte is because... You know, she was off with Lou somewhere and didn't really prepare her children for taking care of themselves the way that they should. And maybe she partially blames herself at least a little bit for what happened and is taking that out on Charlotte and feels guilty immediately after the slap. I mean, that could be me projecting upon the scene. 
I mean, like one of the things that she does in the movie pretty early is her brag about teaching Charlotte how to drive. Because she's just like, there are two things that a woman needs to like, you know, have know how to do in life. And one of them is driving. She doesn't mention the second bit, but you can guess what that is. <laughs> really? <laughs> so like, I mean, like, I think, yeah, she just assumed that like her kids were already equipped. And with the way that Charlotte was, like, I think that she would be responsible in not getting her little sister drunk. Yeah, there was a part where Charlotte is like, sometimes I feel like I'm the mom. And there's, you know, when um, Kate was first born, Charlotte apparently just cradled the kid and, and acted like, you know, it was her baby. And maybe Rachel um, assumed too many things. And she's like, oh, God, Charlotte's still a kid. She is a child. Yeah, because when I was 15, I was already babysitting like three kids. Like a lot of that, I don't think is like too unreasonable, like considering that, like I would have been very shocked. I'm sorry. I'm very defensive. Like, I got to protect Cher. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the thing about that throughout the movie is she's obviously not a great mom, like not mom of the year, but she's not nearly as horrible as Charlotte thinks she is. And I think part of Charlotte's story arc involves seeing her mom as a real person instead of everything she's projected on her. Oh, absolutely. I agree. Yeah, that post-slap conversation, the film frames it as the first like genuine candid unguarded conversation that they have with each other in quite some time if ever the implication is that afterwards things were different between them yeah i mean and and also charlotte has a lot of growth overnight from that i mean she develops a new special interest she starts dressing differently and calms down and opens up to people yeah the line that she has in their fight that really always stuck out to me was the i'm not invisible you need to talk to me and it's like oh my god yay (laughs) she's even just physically different afterwards like so much less tense yeah not no longer like hunched Winona Ryder really was fantastic in this mm-hmm. they all were it's a good movie <laughs> <laughs> all right well that's everything in my notes was is there anything else that we'd like to mention about mermaids before we sign off uh, one more shout out for Lou being a great character and ugh, Joe. Yeah, I'm going to say right now, Lou is my favorite depiction of an artist ever. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent depiction of a shoe salesman as well, I guess. <laughs> Way to go, Lou. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Join us next time for a different subject. Good night.